Hi, I'm Tara G, your host of Frankly Speaking with Tara G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal women and those of you who love them. Fearsome and generous, humble and honest in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know we dig deep and we come up strong. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us there are some things you just don't talk about, but not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it can't come in. Beloved, here we live beyond the wreckage. Every week, we experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other. We share aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Every week, we start right where we are. We ask only that you come dressed in your authentic self, believing that impossible is merely a word. I am so excited about how the show is progressing. We're celebrating our fifth year of proof that dreams can come true. Frankly speaking with Tara G is one of my most priceless dreams. I thank God for every remembrance of you and your gifts of ideas, your presence, your encouragement. They inspire. You know, I can't do this show without you. Thanks so very much for tuning in. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia, on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are webcast worldwide on the Internet at www.radiofairfax.org every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us, no worries. You can catch our archive podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Just key in, Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Podcast. And if you feel like connecting with me offline, that's easy too. Email me at Tyra Garlington, Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song and for naming it, I'm Listening. intentionally created, frankly speaking, with Tyra G, with an intergenerational and multicultural audience in mind. Thematic content helps keep our stories fresh and relevant. This evening, our story is curated from our human library theme, Voices from the Future. It's always delightful for he- to hear the hopes and dreams and concerns of our next generation. It serves as a kind of a report card on how we are doing. After all, legacy is an interconnection across time with the need for those who have come before us and a responsibility of those who come after us. We need to understand the world isn't connected by molecules. It's connected by stories and transitions and traditions and memories and hopes and dreams. Legacy is truly about life and living. My guest this week will give us a snapshot of how we are doing and how she is responding to the world we have given her. She's a member of Generation Z, 
They have reached a dullhood in the second decade of the 21st century. We know their unifying attribute as the first social generation to have grown up with access to the internet and portable digital technology. They tend to turn to their screens before they turn to each other. And we just keep loving them and hoping they'll be tolerant while we figure out what to do with ours. So in order to create a common thought space today, I want to share some thoughts that describe the kind of legacy seeds that must have been planted to harvest the spirit and talent of my young guest today. I'm borrowing words again from our favorite author, Miss Ayana Vansan, in her book Until Today, published in 2000. It's called If I Had a Little Girl. If I had a little girl, I would tell her all the things I think she would need to know to fully prepare for life. I would tell her that there would be good days and bad days and that she should be grateful for them all. I would tell her that she's always protected and that no matter what she does, she will always be loved. I would tell my little girl that life is full of wonder and excitement and that it's all available to her. I would tell her to focus on one thing at a time, enjoy it, taking the most pleasant memories of it into her next experience. I would tell her, be kind to all people, even when they're not kind in return. I would tell my little girl to find something to appreciate about everything and everyone. When you're appreciative, you get more to appreciate. I would tell my little girl, She did not have to rely on people for her good. That she could withdraw all that she needs from heaven. I would tell her to always tell the truth in the way she would want to hear it. Always give her best and never doubt that it was good enough. Always remember where she came from and the people that would help her along the way. I would tell her the best things in life are not things they are people. I would tell my little girl that it's important to honor what she feels. I would tell her that a well-ordered mind will never lead her astray and that her mind and her life are to be in order and she must put God first. The most important thing I would want my little girl to know is that she should never be afraid to make mistakes because mistakes when evaluated, make masters. My guest today is in the early writing of her chapters, her story, her life plan, the legacy she is living and building. Yet she's not new to the frankly speaking table. Her first conversation occurred when she was in high school, along with her brother and her cousins, giving their generational opinions about education, social environment, challenges, dreams, and they did a great job with a joint case study where they played student council reps in a, con- in a school where bullying was pervasive. I knew she'd be back then, and I knew we would listen and be inspired once again. I want to welcome Ms. Naomi Nero, and if you heard Nero before, this is the daughter of the composer and performer of our theme song. Naomi, the mic is yours, dear. A lot has happened 
since the last time. Why don't you share with our, our audience who you are from your perspective? Awesome. Yeah, well, I a lot has happened. I have gone on to college. I graduated from college. Um, and, of course, there, you know, there's so much that goes into who you are as a person. And I was reflecting before um, doing the show in my room, and I was looking at um, my wall. I don't know if we've talked about this, but in my wall in my room, I have a huge wall I call my quote wall. Yes, um, yes, we have. Yeah, the note cards and the quotes on the note cards. I started eight years ago and now have grown over to 600 note cards with 600 quotes. Oh, my goodness. And I was looking at them. I know. I was looking at them and just um, it's been quotes that have spoken to me over the years. And a lot of these quotes are about, you know, discovering yourself, discovering your passion, um, respecting yourself and others, but also um, not being afraid of the power that you have to change the world. So when I think about my journey so far and the future um, and what has inspired me um, both to graduate from the University of Chicago and then I'm starting a PhD in psychology in a couple weeks at Georgetown, um, a lot of it's the confidence in, in my faith. I know that God has planned for me and, and for my life, but um, also the confidence that I know that I will be able to you know, continue on this journey and, and hopefully uh, change the world for the better. And of course, my wonderful family and friends have, have helped me so far, but the journey has been long and it's not over. So I'm really excited um, for the future things ahead. Let me just ask you, you talked about change a lot, and I mm-hmm. see you as a game changer. I see you as the army that will change the world. In fact, uh, you have to. <laughs> We've managed to get into a bit of a mess. But um, think about, all right, so high school, uh, college, you went away. Uh, you were in mm-hmm. Chicago. Your family was in Virginia. Uh, what can you think about as one or two of the most important lessons learned in that environment away from family being challenged academically and socially. What do you think you yeah. learned there? Um, I think the first thing has been not being afraid to ask for help. I know that there's there's a lot of resources for us. We have, um, you know, other people in our family who can help us at school. There's resources at school in order for me to, you know, achieve the dreams that I had and the goals that I had set for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times, you know, before you know, I'm going through life, I'm like, oh, I've been able to do all these things. And, and you kind of forget um, the support system that you had that has helped you get that far. Um, so I had to realize that um, I do have that support system. And if I do need help, it's not a bad thing to ask for it in order to, you know, progress and go further on, on your journey. So I think that was one of the more important, um, if not the most important lesson that I've learned Uh, over the last couple years. And I think to me that's a resounding lesson and often when I'm speaking with young people, actually when I'm speaking with women my own age and other generations, Mm -hmm. we forget that we are not Mm -hmm. alone. We forget that we are not the only one. So I appreciate you so much, one, experiencing and recognizing that asking for help is a positive thing. So I'm, I'm making a mm-hmm. note of things I learned while talking to you, and I have not been <laughs> afraid to ask for help. So this is good. All right, so um, 
give the uh, listening audience an idea. All right, your head was not always in books when you were in college. You did some other fascinating things. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i always had a lot of different interests. And in, uh, when I was in college, it's like I want to pursue as many of these as I can. So in addition to um, academic things that I did, I also am a musician and a dancer, so I was able to participate in extracurriculars like that. Um, I was in two dance groups. Um, and I also sang as part of the worship team for my church in Chicago. Um, so those were a lot of the other things I was able to pursue. I'm really grateful I had those opportunities while I was there. I know, and I'm going to tell the audience we have a treat uh, toward the end of the interview. Uh, we're going to share uh, <laughs> one of the uh, presents that come from uh, Naomi's gifts and talents that uh, in involved some sibling right some sibling input <laughs> yeah yeah um okay so uh today we are going to do something that is going to be a present a gift an intellectual gift to our listeners and it involves something that uh represents the uh quality of uh, naomi's education and it also represents what she now i i'm not sure i know this thesis is this the beginning of your work or beginning of your direction for your doctorate as well before we give the title yes it is okay okay all right um i found out that naomi had been asked to present her thesis as a part of the end of year uh activities at the University of Chicago and I went like whoa that's awesome what what's it all about Naomi and then she gave me the name and I went what what wait what what <laughs> wait what uh, some big names but um, I was fascinated and because I had done had experience within the criminal justice system doing some research several years ago that was very gender specific looking at women Naomi has uh, research that does a comparison between men and women inmates and some of their uh, mental health related behaviors. And with that, I'm going to ask you, first of all, what is the topic and why did you choose it? Mm -hmm. um, well, the topic of my honors thesis for um, my psychology degree was psychopathy, borderline personality disorder, disorder and violent crime in male and female inmates. So um, psychopathy is a clinical construct. Um, some people might have heard the term of being a psychopath. It's uh, now it's become really popular in pop media and different TV shows and things like that. Um, and borderline personality disorder is uh, another um, mental health disorder um, that uh, has affected millions of people worldwide. Um, and I was really first interested in psychopathy, that was um, the relationship between psychopaths um, and psychopathic behavior and violent crime has been an interest of mine for a number of years. Um, and I was able to work with my thesis advisor, Dr. Jean Dehidi at University of Chicago um, to investigate the relationships and basically the gender differences that might be um, presented in psychopathy. And a lot of this research 
um, in psychopathy and overall in the sciences so far, um, especially in psychology, has been on males. And so mm. a lot of the research so far is just now realizing that these generalizations that we've had for years about, you know, this is what this disorder looks like is really, um, really limited to just um, males and mainly white males um, because that's just uh, been the population um, and the sample size that we've used. So I really wanted to um, try and expand this research a little bit more to look at gender differences and specifically in female inmates, how um, these relationships might work. You know, I, I want us to, before we get down into uh, specifics, I think I want us to bubble back up to the 50,000-foot uh, level of talking about why it's significant in the criminal mm -hmm. justice system, in mental health, why it's important to look at women. And uh, what my research said that uh, most of the uh, policies and procedures never included uh, women in consideration. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until recently, I think when I was working, it was like women were only 10% of the total jail population. And I went, I visited 38 state prisons and one federal prison looking mm -hmm. for programs that address the needs of women. Out of all of those, I found one. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, I think, and I'm sure you're going to talk about it, is there's a difference in the path women take into prison as opposed to men. And usually there's mm -hmm. victimless path, and uh, right. they generally aren't that aggressive. So when you're programming to help or rehabilitate, uh, those kinds of things, and I'm sure you're going to talk about so I won't do that. Um, <laughs> but, no, I'm saying, like, that's the inmate population, but we can walk out of jails and see that's the social population as well. Depending mm -hmm. on socio socioeconomic stresses, we find women as victims in our population. And uh, a lot of policies and procedures do not accommodate those differences. So um, that's why I, that's the first reason I said, oh my gosh, she is in a very special place. I better be quiet and learn. So um, make, us, make us smarter. Go ahead and talk about your methodology and... Uh, your processes of uh, study and who helped you and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what, one, what you were just saying, I think is really important. Also, um, thinking about um, the gender differences that we've seen both. I mean, you see in the prison population um, how these rehabilitation programs are really targeted to um, helping the men in the prison, the men inmates not um, the female inmates, um, but also when you're looking at the general makeup, even racially, um, in prison, you're also seeing, you know, it's overwhelmingly minorities. And so when you're looking at, uh, you know, the, the females who aren't having rehabilitation programs that are really effective or any rehabilitation programs at all, it's um, the females who are also minorities who are really falling behind and you know, coming out of prison, not having the support that they need. So um, a lot of implications of, of the work. Um, yeah. But the the basic process, this is a really big project. 
Yeah. Um, (laughs) It was about two years. By the time I got to the end, I was like, wow, I've been working on this for two years so far. Um, And I was fortunate enough to have uh, some data that my thesis advisor had used on um, a previous project. Um, It was an fMRI study, but I was just going to use a subset of this data. Um, And this was um, different um, psychological evaluations that were done on male and female inmates in um, prisons in New Mexico and Wisconsin. Okay. Um, And so I I kind of came to my thesis advisor with this idea. Um, I was sitting in one of his classes one day, and and he just, uh, we were talking about psychopathy, and he mentioned, um, you know, there's some recent research that was done on females that um, has realized or, or, you know, had a small conclusion that the uh, symptoms that were really prevalent, specifically in female psychopaths, are very similar to those in borderline personality disorder. Okay. And he said that, and I was like, wait, wait, let's look a little bit more into that. And um, so I, I brought up this idea of um, investigating this relationship more and seeing if it has anything to do um, with predicting violent crime in females versus males. And so then I, I got this data. I uh, did a lot of coding. Um, it's it's really funny because I was, you know, one of the classes I had to take for Chicago was a coding class, and I did not do so Now, well. for people who may not be uh, academically prone to research, yes. <laughs> let's talk about some of the terminology. When you're saying coding, what are you saying to them? What kind, When you're dealing with sets of uh, cohorts, et cetera, what are you talking about uh, so that they yeah, can... So vis- for- yeah. Yeah, for coding, um, it's basically getting all these numbers that I have on a big spreadsheet, and I'm, you know, making these different analyses on the computer. Um, so you have to know the specific um, program that you're using, and each program has a, a language, um, and you're, you know, typing strings of text that are then going to analyze these data in, in the way that you tell the computer to do so. Um so I, I had to take a class learning about this, and at the end of the class, I was like, I really feel like I did not do well in this class. Um, but I know a lot of the you know research that we're doing in psychology, and I knew if I was going to go into grad school, would be um, being able to program and and doing these code analysis. So I kind of stretched myself with this thesis that I was doing because. Um, all of it was um, being able to code on my computer in order to do this analysis. Um, and I was looking at psychopathy, um, which in this data set was measured um, with this one evaluation called the psychopathy checklist. Um, it's one of the leading ways that um, clinicians are able to um, evaluate the presence of um, psychopathic behaviors. So before um, before we go into that, just uh, can you break down for us initially what is a symptom of a psychopath? What behaviors does that person uh, display? Yeah, so um, psychopathy is, is made up of a whole bunch of different symptoms. Okay. Um, some of the, the leading ones are being really callous or having a lack of empathy. Okay. Um, and then... You can also be really impulsive, um, and then also having the antisocial behavior, which means the criminality, getting in trouble with the law, breaking the law, and things like that. 
Um, so it's a whole host of um, different symptoms that are present. Um, sometimes uh, you're able to see it when you when you diagnose somebody as an adult. You want to also ask about questions of how they were when they were a teenager and um, were they having the presence of some of these symptoms when they were younger as well. Um, and this uh, evaluation technique, the psychopathy checklist, uh, has a whole bunch of questions that the clinicians are able to ask for to look and see if they do have um, a lack of empathy and increased impulsivity in those symptoms as well. So are they saying that psychopaths are born? Are these learned behaviors or are these environmentally induced behaviors? Yeah, I mean, that is the big question that we are still trying to okay. figure out. And I mean, in a lot of the a lot of the questions in psychology where you're ask, asking, is this biological or is this learned? Oftentimes the answer ends up being it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, so there's, there's research that points to certain um, brain mechanisms or genetic factors mm-hmm. that lead to someone being born and um, developing these symptoms. And then there's also a lot of research looking into um, what are the environmental factors that the neighborhood they grew up with uh, or grew up in, um, some, you know, experience that they had when they were really young and when they're in school or their fam- family dynamics that can also um, lead to a lot of uh, the same symptoms. So, so if they experience something traumatic young, it could manifest itself later on or it could uh, intensify into uh, psychopathy? Yeah, and yeah, that seems to be um, some of the research is saying, and oftentimes it's it's not just having one one of these. It's not just having one traumatic event, or you know, even if there are genetic factors, just having this one gene means you're going to be a psycho- psychopath. That isn't what um, what research is showing. It's oftentimes a conglomeration of a lot of these different factors. Okay, um, that end up with someone with these symptoms. Okay, and okay, so now. All right, we're looking at a psychopath that's not incarcerated, and we're seeing mm-hmm. behavior that is lack of empathy, it's aggressive, it's uh, accusatory, it's violent sometimes or whatever, and generally someone like that would be inclined to commit <laughs> a crime, right? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. N- now we got that person in prison, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, now we talk about treatment in prison. So, how do they, what, what do they do? What do they do if they are that way before they come in? There should be a path of intervention. Is there one? I mean, the the difficulty with this is that a lot of the a lot of the rehabilitation programs that have been developed so far have been effective. Yes, um, even the ones that we've seen for males. And um, sometimes that can be, um, some people with um, psychopathy are also very narcissistic, so they just, they see their way of living and their, their perspective of the world is the best one, and they don't need to listen to the psychologist um, in, gotcha. in order to change, and that doesn't work. Other times, um, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of different, it's a lot of different uh, reasons why, but um I think that, you know, with this project that I was looking at, Mm -hmm. um, in developing rehabilitation programs, another thing that we have to 
take into account is the gender differences. So if, if we're developing rehabilitation programs for males, um, yeah. if the way that psychopathy is present in females isn't the same, okay. then we can't necessarily expect those to be helpful for females as well. So the thing that we said in the beginning is women have been an afterthought traditionally. Yeah. In mm-hmm. Well, in history, period. Okay. But yeah. in the criminal justice system, they just were clumped in there with the men. And so I'm hearing you say now they're starting to realize there are differences between men and women. So therefore, rehabilitation must accommodate those differences, right? Yes. And um, my so my thesis was really trying to look at what are those potential differences between okay. males and females. Okay. Um, and then the conclusion was, you know, trying to add to that research. Perfect. Okay, so what did you find out? Yeah, so I, um, again, was looking at the relationship between psychopathy, um, borderline personality disorder, which the reason why I was looking at those two specifically is, um, as I mentioned, that some of the symptoms um, for females um, that were found to be more extreme than males in psychopathy, they're very similar to those seen in borderline personality disorder. And those symptoms are things like impulsivity, um, having an overall poor poor global fu- functioning, um, but also this low emotionality, which is talking about um, in borderline personality disorder, oftentimes a lot of um, aspects of depression and suicidal mm. thoughts, and um, those things were oftentimes in females with high psychopathy, they also had a lot of those symptoms. Um, so I found that for females, you could predict um, the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder by um, the presence of psychopathy or not. And this was not the fact for males. For males, there was no relationship between the two, um, which kind of confirms, you know, previous studies that found that the symptoms that for females and psychopaths that were more extreme were similar to those in borderline personality disorder. Um, but my second main um, finding was the relationship between those two and violent crime. And I found that for females, when you're predicting violent crime conviction, um, we found that you could predict it by um, psychopathy and borderline personality disorder together. But for males, um, borderline personality disorder didn't predict violent crime at all. Um, So it was just the presence of psychopathy, which for me, my main conclusion from that was that there are um, symptoms that are seen in psychopathy and BPD um, that are really important in this violent crime conviction, but also that um, for psychopathy, there seems to be those symptoms that are more prevalent in females. Those are the ones that are seen in BPD. Um, And we should take those into account when we're trying to develop these rehabilitation programs and um, also when we're looking for diagnostic tools. Um, What are we actually looking for when diagnosing psychopathy? We should be looking at these symptoms that um, are more extreme in females and that are actually contributing to the conviction of violent crime. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, diagnosis, I was waiting for an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, how, aside from looking at the outcome, the behavior outcome, how do they diagnose? Can they diagnose successfully? Because it seems to me these two conditions are related. 
mm-hmm. and we're not sure whether it's chemically induced environment. We don't know yet. That's the bottom line. We don't right. know. Okay. So what is the criminal justice system doing when they say, okay, we have this condition. In women, it's different than it is in men. In women, now say that part again, Naomi. In women, the predictors, uh, no, I better not oh, try. Yeah. <laughs> so for um, women, when predicting violent crime, um, both psychopathy and BPD um, together predict violent crime. But for males, it's only psychopathy and, and not P- BPD that can predict violent crime in this um, sample. Okay. All right. Okay. So I'm not feeling very confident about treating this within the criminal justice system. What do they do now? Do they do talk therapy? How do they do this? Is it medication? How do they treat them? I mean, there seems to be a mix of um, medication, specifically when you're looking at um, borderline personality disorder. There's both um, therapy, group therapy, and um, medication okay. um, for psychop for psychopathy. Um, a lot of times, it's also therapy. But in addition to this idea of, of narcissism that is um, present with a lot of um, psychopaths, it's also uh, oftentimes psychopaths are really manipulative. Yes, um, yes, so yes. They, they go into therapy and they're they end up kind of tricking the clinician into thinking that they're getting better. They get released and they actually weren't getting better in the first place. Absolutely. Now, I'm remembering a long time ago, and I don't know if it's changed, but uh, the women that um, I looked at had a lot of self-harming behavior like Mm -hmm. uh, cutting and carving and burning, and and they had a lot of suicide attempts. Does that play Mm -hmm. into this uh, syndrome as well or not? Um, It's not as commonly seen as um, psychopathy, but it is uh, a big symptom seen in borderline personality disorders. So, I mean, future research looking more into these gender differences and, and the implication of them, um, it would be interesting, you know, to try and see if that's playing into psychopathy in females or right, right. me saying you know, me saying it's, it's not a thing seen in psychopathy is that because the research that I've been, you know, reading that's been done so far has only been done in males. Um, there's still a lot to learn about that. And that's the sadness of it all. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, most of the, well, most of the population incarcerated is male. And uh, mm-hmm. it was interesting. I think when you started out, and I wanted to, I don't think I wrote it down, you were talking about the demographics and I, yeah. of the research. Now, I know minorities are generally the majority incarcerated, but I think you said something about right. ca- Caucasian men. Did I hear that right? Um, yeah, so the, the um, first main researcher that was looking into psychopaths, um, he had the last name Hare, and he was up in Canada, and he uh, developed um, the psychopathy checklist and a lot of what we uh, psychologists now understand about psychopathy um, based off of these white male prisoners. Okay, that's what um, I was on. Yeah, okay. So, you know, the, the way we're diagnosing it and our checklist that we're going through is based off of that. And, you know, there's been some research that has tried to confirm, um, you know, our current understandings of psychopathy in other uh, populations as well. Um, but 
a lot of the research so far has been done on, on white males. Do you have a clue or have you noticed in your own research who's doing the research? You know, more men than women? You know, uh, I mean, I have seen overall it's more men than women, but that's mostly because when you're looking at the demographics of academia, but yes, um, yes, that's right. I'm I'm going into a PhD program in um, psychology at Georgetown, and my PI or my principal investigator um, is a woman. Her name is Dr. Abigail Marsh. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's also doing research in um, psychopathy and more about the development uh, of psychopathy. So looking both at kids and adults. So oh, good. That's, like, that's what I was going to ask you. Children. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we get before they enter the criminal justice system, uh, the behavior mm-hmm. I'm sure presents right. Uh, yeah. And so that means that we've got educational systems that may or may not have diagnosis that's appropriate at that level Mm -hmm. and treatment. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm just thinking, hmm, yeah. I don't know how many people ever watched Criminal Minds or saw Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) I'm a person Mm -hmm. that uh, I'm fascinated with uh, mystery and uh, uh, criminal mystery because I I also Mm -hmm. like filmmaking. But uh, very rarely do they take you behind the scenes of the mind. Very rarely mm-hmm. are you uh, exposed to the therapeutic approach to fixing the problem. Generally, what my watching of many, many, many uh, violent, not violent, movies that dealt with criminal behavior, it's the behavior and it's the punishment but I haven't seen the therapeutic supportive approach uh, demonstrated, which, you know, I don't know what that says about us, but I'm guessing. Okay, so so let me understand. You're making a transition, and you're taking your research with you. Tell me what that looks like for the next, what would be, three years, two years? Five years. Oh, excuse me. Actually, so it'll be it'll be a long. A lot of PhD programs are. I'm I'm really excited about um, going to Georgetown, though. I uh, basically, I mean, I went into undergrad um, knowing that after undergrad, I wanted to go to grad school, and so what that looked like was, I mean, doing a lot of research and finding um, a researcher who was investigating the topics that I wanted to. And so I'm going to be continuing my research on psychopathy, um, hopefully both in adults and then also looking at um, the symptoms as they develop in children. Um, And I I mean, I'm really interested in looking at both um, how can we help uh, adults and, and, um, you know, learn more about this disorder um, but also how does it present and how does it develop in kids? Because hopefully we're able to um, help with the rehabilitation programs um, in adults as and keep them out of prison, but also prevent uh, kids from getting to that point um, as they're getting older um, where they're getting involved in the criminal justice system. So I'm starting in a couple weeks with our summer, summer course and um, we'll begin research in the fall. So let me give you a dream question. I sense your curiosity. uh, Your intellect is obvious. Let's say 
at the end of this next season of academic research, you have an opportunity to be that which you said, a change agent. What would you do in this field if you knew that you could not fail? Uh, big question. I know, I know it is. I know it is. But, <laughs> but, but you can you can deal with it. I know that. Take your time, um, because yeah. you've hinted to a lot of things and you you've pointed out a lot of limitations <clears throat> that currently mm-hmm. exist. And when you put kids in that formula, we're talking about our future, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, based I on what so. you know, what do you yeah. think? Well, my I've had right now I have two dreams. Um, one I've had for a while and that has been able to um, doing uh, this research and um, from a law enforcement perspective and working for the FBI. Mm. Um, and um, so a lot of that would be kind of taking what I will have learned and hopefully um, added to this um, body of research in my graduate school program. Um, and Figuring out how, from a law enforcement perspective, can I be helping this problem, and um, both in terms of keeping the community safe, but also the people who are going into jail, how can we be helping them? Um, and then I also recently have uh, realized a passion for volunteering, specifically with juveniles who are um, involved in the criminal justice system. And I, my church back in Chicago. Uh, has a group of people that uh, go and reach out to kids in detention centers, and we've been able to, um, you know, meet with them and take prayer requests and, and share the gospel with them mm-hmm. and encouraging them. So that's something I'm hoping I can continue um, just to help kids as they're coming in and then transitioning out and coming back into the world in order to empower them um, to, you know, go after the dreams that they have. Um, or beyond, you know, the situations that um, led them to being in the detention center in this place. Well, now you you just said something I wanted I want to park on for a minute. Uh, you were participating in a program, an outreach program from your church. You were going mm-hmm. to a center sharing the gospel, right? Yes. Okay. Tell me what that was like. Share with me. Help us understand how big the bread box is when it comes to helping our youth that are in yeah. trouble. What were the response patterns? Were there both men, uh, boys and girls there? Um, this one was just with boys, and it was they were teenager age, so usually around like 15 to 18. And this was over COVID, so it was still virtual. Okay, um, okay. We, we were able to, we have somebody from our church, he's a chaplain, and he works um, in those detention centers. So he was there in person. Okay. Um, and we introduced ourselves, you know, told us, told them about um, our church. A lot of them had said they were from the South Side, which um, University of Chicago and our church um, is right on the border of the South Side. So they, you know, were familiar with the area, which is cool. But when we went around and asked for prayer requests, it was really cool because a lot of um, you know, a lot of their first prayer request was just pray for my family. And they're like, pray that, you know, they keep them, you know, I'm not able to help them as I'm in here. Um, so, you know, pray for my mom, my dad, my sisters, um, and pray that another one, uh, one of the voices was um, pray that I could do better 
and that, you know, I'm able to get out of here and do well in my life. And so it it was really humbling experience um, because I feel like from outside people who are not, you know, connected with the criminal justice system at all, um, it oftentimes is like, oh, it's kind of othering. Oh, yes, it's definitely othering. They're in a box. Now, you Um, said, I want to, you said something uh, when you said, when they had prayer requests and the one that jumped mm-hmm. out at me uh if i heard you correctly was uh prayers to protect my family while i'm not there yeah so what i'm hearing is you have uh males young that feel or know that they are responsible for the well-being of their family now to mm-hmm. me that's a sociological pressure that we could do without, but I'm sure contributes to why they are in there in the first place. Well, how did how did they receive the gospel? A lot of them were very open to it, and and even at the end, um, when we were saying goodbye, and, and the chaplain was handing out um, uh, devotionals for them to do. Yes, and and some of them already had one. They were like, "Oh yeah, like I did I did mine this morning," and. Um, we were all able to pray together, and, and they were very thankful for um, the one of the one of my friends had given um, told a parable from the Bible and just given them some encouragement. So they were very thankful and um, receiving of um, the gospel and what we were talking to them about. And that's a that's a blessing in itself. Now, why, yeah. what was the profile? Why were they in there? What kinds of crimes brought them to that setting? I am not really sure. Um, okay. And some of them, and some of them were um, the chaplain was telling us that some of them were there for you know different amount of time. So um, I know some of them were going to be there for only like thirty days. Some of them were there for a couple months. Right. Um, there was one one young man who. Uh, had committed multiple crimes, so he was going to be there, and he was close to 18. Um, so he was going to be there for a couple of months, but then was being transferred to the adult prison to serve time there. So it it off it's kind of a um, pathway yeah. that that people are there for a differing amount of time. And there's also the potential of recidivism, which is sad. Yeah, uh, what yeah. we have to understand somehow is that it does take a village it takes churches and schools etc because a lot of the families that produce children in trouble are in trouble themselves and Mm -hmm. uh, very often are in a survival mode and uh, yeah yeah, so uh, that's sadness but uh, they've got a champion in the making and that's you so as a change maker i hear you saying one of your dreams is to take this research and introduce it into law enforcement perhaps the fbi mm-hmm. uh and now are you thinking of impacting legislation or just policies and procedures at the site level how do you see that working in your dream in my dream um mostly policy and procedure within law enforcement. I think, you know, recently there's been a big push in um, incorporating mental health training into uh, people who are working in law enforcement. And I know in Chicago, um, you know, if, if they get, if the police get a call and it sounds like there's also um, some 
something with a mental health disorder that's right. involved, they'll send an officer who has been trained in that. And so I think a lot of this research that um, I'm hoping to do in the future um, can add to those kinds of trainings and uh, just helping uh, the criminal justice system being more aware and being able to apply um, the research and the findings um, into policies and procedures. Well, I, you know, I, I'm delighted. I'm delighted you're here. I'm delighted to know there are young people like you uh, busily keeping the world afloat. I want to say to our listening audience that my guest today has been Ms., soon-to-be Dr. Naomi Nero, sharing her (laughs) master's thesis. Now, this is a mouthful, but she broke it down for us. Psychopathy, borderline personality disorder, and violent crime in male and female inmates. The thing I love about this is she is emphasizing uh, in her research, at least query in her research, Uh, the differences, the gender differences, and how that has to impact the uh, reform difference, the uh, Mm -hmm. therapeutic differences and outcome. What I I want everybody to understand is Miss Naomi, she says, oh, I, you know, I dance, I sing. I want to give you a taste of uh, some of her other gifts right now. Naomi, tell us what this song is I'm about to play. Um, so this song is called Stand Up. It's by Cynthia Erivo. Um Some people might have heard it in the movie Harriet. Um, and it, it's really, you know, this movie is following Harriet Tubman and the courage that she had. And when I first heard this song, I was just felt really empowered. Um, both it's talking about um, helping your community and, and taking this taking them through, um, but also when you're thinking about, and you know, you're asking the question about my dream, um, thinking about the strength and courage that it takes to fulfill your dreams and uh, leave a path for people behind you to also fulfill theirs. So um, that's what this song is about. All right, so let's be inspired.
This is a very dynamic, very dynamic young woman. I feel very comfortable that our future is in her hands along with so many others like her. Thank you so much, Naomi. Was there anybody else in your family involved with that? Of course, my wonderful brother, Asa Nero, um, <laughs> was involved doing some of the vocals and also a lot of the production and the music behind the scenes. So he's also amazing. Yes, he is. And what's his future interest? You know, what does he do? He he is studying music at yes. University of North Texas. Yes, he, um, he is. So he's very, very talented. And I think... Um, the two of you are going to do a future show for me. I, I left it up to the two of you because I, I believe in you. So I can't wait to see what the surprises will be. Again, let me thank you. Thank you so much. And to our listening audience, I hope you got smarter about some things today. And I hope you were blessed as I was. Let me give you a taste of our spiritual doggy bag for uh, this week. It's offered by author Glenn Doyle Mellon, and I quote, Stop. Stop holding your breath. Breathe. There's enough. I've created an abundance of acceptance, attention, recognition, joy, peace, money, energy, clothes, food. I will never leave you without enough. And there's nothing to be afraid of, no feeling, no circumstance, no person. These things come and they go. 
and you can live through them without running, hiding, numbing, or hurting one another, my dear children. And did you know this, my angel? There's never been anything wrong with you. Hear me now. Not one day in your life. You're exactly who you were meant to be right now, as you are. You're not to be ashamed. You punish yourself, but you have no reason to be punished. You can stop now. You're free. What would you do as love? What I'm hoping is that you know you're worthy of giving and receiving. I hope you believe that you're new every moment. Your time, your energy, your mind, the people who come in your life, they're all gifts. They belong to you and everyone else. They're infinite. Sincerely, God. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. I look forward to next time. Until the remem- till then, remember, you're stronger than you feel, smarter than you think, more beautiful than you know, and more love that you can ever than you could ever imagine. You're chosen. You're important. Treat yourself like someone you love. Until next time, this is Tara G. Loving you.